Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octavian companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers to have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. On this episode, we are joined by paranormal investigator, blogger, columnist, and author Ken Summers. Yes. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Uh, Ken is uh, Ken was more than willing to entertain our ridiculous questions. As all, I mean, I wouldn't say as always because I guess that's not actually the case. But you know, as one would hope. There we go. As one would hope. As the interviews worth listening to have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, this was a lot of fun. Uh, we got a bit into some of the stories from Queer Hauntings. A lot of theorizing about the nature of ghosts or liminality, which I appreciated as someone who loves to theorize. Uh, yeah, and also we got to dig at Ohio. That was good. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Ken's from Ohio and also dug at Ohio, so that's kind of funny. <sighs> no one hates Ohio more than the people who are from Ohio, in my experience. <laughs> I mean, once again, they have produced a staggering amount of astronauts compared to the other states because uh, Ohio makes, want pe- makes people want to flee the Earth, and I don't blame them. Yeah. I hate it there. The point is they all came back, though. Not by choice. <laughs> well, we don't know that. They ran out of food. All right. Uh, should we just let him listen to the interview before Jay goes off on an anti-Ohio tirade? I think we. I think that might be best. Let's what go. Decent zoo. That's all that's there. with Ken Summers, author of Queer Hauntings. How's it going, Ken? It's going pretty good. And yourself? I can't complain. Yeah, no complaints uh, here. Yet another frozen Monday in the Midwestern hellscape. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's not too bad here, but Wednesday's supposed to be bad, so. Oh, the cold will come for us all eventually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the cold that awaits us all, let's talk about death. <laughs> so... Our uh, first question is one we ask all of our guests because we are a book club, which is what are you reading and what sorts of books do you tend to gravitate towards? Oh, I, I, I always love murder mysteries for some reason. I was hooked on Agatha Christie as a child. And so murders are definitely my type of thing. Um, that checks out. One, the recent book that I just picked up that I haven't quite started to read yet is A Dark Room in Glitterball City. It's actually about a homicide that I first saw about on, I think it was another, the first 48, it, about this gay couple that was arrested for uh, domestic issues. And the one said, oh, yeah, well, he has a body buried in the basement. And the police didn't really believe it until we found the body. Uh, so 
a very interesting story. So I, I'm familiar with it, but I still want to read the book. Yeah. So do you stray more towards fictional murder or are you a true crime buff? I'm a lot more into true crime nowadays. Um, I try not to get too involved with it because there's just only so much depression that you can handle. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. I, I find nonfiction a lot more alluring these days than fiction. So I'm definitely on a nonfiction kick, I would say. Mm-hmm. I understand uh, the depressing nature of true crime. It's why I have I struggle with it. Or as Jay here is our resident junkie. Yeah. Yeah. One time I put on a show called Evil Lives Here while everyone else was in the living room. And when the episode ended, Nick was like, you are never allowed to watch that in front of me ever again. And I was like, that's completely fair. Normally, the episodes are a lot tamer than Incest Cult in the Woods. I apologize. I didn't know this was the Incest Cult episode. I'll check the descriptions more closely from now on. I have watched that show, so I understand. (laughs) It's a great show if you're us. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of us, getting into our first question here. So uh, given the on the fringe nature of the paranormal community, one might assume that they would be opening and welcoming to anyone and everyone who had an interest in it. However, as you pointed out in your book, that's sadly not always been the case. In your opinion, why has it been so hard for queer voices to find space within paranormal communities? I think it's it's the nature of society right now. It's always been the nature of society to stick with the mainstream, stick with uh not not intentionally keeping everything heterosexual, but just it's it's just the nature of everything to focus on that and not consider anything outside of that realm. And especially it's it's always was an interesting conundrum, I would say, when I started in the paranormal field, probably over 20 years ago now, it was probably closer to 25. But it was always interesting to me that it seemed to basically be straight white men who were mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm. Then that was that was the entire field, pretty much. Yeah. Once in a while, you'd have a woman, but it would always be a psychic. Uh, but that was just the way it always was, and it stayed that way for a very long time. All the all the popular shows that started coming out were the same makeup uh, and all that. I think it's just people don't think that people of other backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities and all of that uh, have those interests. They just assume basically that it's only their little click of the world that has these kinds of beliefs and all that. So I think that's just what it is. It's just something that people don't bother to stop and think about. So in your opinion, it's less something, a problem with specifically the paranormal community. It's just that the paranormal community is part of the world and that's a constant issue in the world. Well, I would say there was a time where it was more of an issue, but I think that has faded a bit over the years. Uh, I think with people like Adam Barry on television and uh, like the Ghost Brothers and all the different diversity that's come out in the field, it's opened up a lot more than it was. I mean, back 20 years ago, it was very straight, white, Republican mindset and everyone you met was in that same same mindset very very deeply devoutly religious and always christian 
And you still see a lot of that today, but it's opening up a lot more than it used to be. Yeah. I, uh, I think I've started to see that a lot. My see that a lot myself. Like you go back and you look at some of like the older shows or even, uh, Amy Bruni in her book talked about it a little bit, how, how hard it was for her to break out in the, in the paranormal field, just, you know, what was it like 15, 20 years ago when she started, when she started it. But now we're starting to see almost entire conventions of places that are, are getting better. That's what I'll say. It's not perfect, and it probably won't ever be perfect, but it is definitely getting better. Yes. Is that part of what led you to seeking out stories of queer hauntings? Um, and also, have you? is there a noticeable difference in the manifestation of queer hauntings in your experience, or do they tend to be the same across the spectrum? Uh, I would say what really brought me into it was just for the longest time, I basically felt like I was living two lives. I was a paranormal investigator in one life, and then I was a gay man in another. And I could not cross those two boundaries because neither one mixed with the other. Uh, A lot of my gay friends were staunch, staunch skeptics, and a lot of the ghost hunters and paranormal investigators I dealt with didn't want to think about that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, And that sort of got me to thinking, you know, you never hear about gay ghosts. You never hear a gay ghost story. You never hear about a lesbian poltergeist or anything like that. And it's like, it has to be by sheer numbers of people who have died in the world. There has to be stories like this somewhere out there. And so I just started a journey just trying to find them. And at first it was almost impossible research-wise because you would type in gay ghost in a search engine and you might get a couple jokes or uh, the old comic book from the 1940s and 50s. And that was it. There was just no information out there. So it was a lot of just digging through and trying to find uh, the humorous stories that people write and little articles here and there about, oh yeah, this pub is haunted by a gay ghost and all that. And it just spiraled from there. And I started blogging about it uh, as like a once a week type of thing. And then started compiling enough to actually put into an actual book. And as far as the nature of the hauntings and all that, just I would say just like you would expect, there's really no difference between gay and straight and queer hauntings at all. There's stories of uh, tragic deaths, murders, lost loves, uh, all of those things. It's it's across the board universal for all humanity really oh it's similar to something that we've often said on our show which is the paranormal is a human experience and ultimately it belongs to everyone all of us yeah so before we get too deep into specific stories from the book um in your own words and interpretation what is a ghost exactly oh that's the, the million dollar question. I was going to say, yep. the, the biggest question. Yes, it is also, for me, the most difficult thing to answer because I don't think that has been satisfactorily uh, answered yet by anyone. Uh, there's a lot of definitions out there. 
Um, and I can play a role of both skeptic and uh, I hate the word believer because it makes it sound like you're, you have your faith in something that is just pure faith and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I would say probably the easiest definition I can give you is I would say that a ghost is uh, a form or several forms of phenomena that occur without uh, an explainable reason uh, that are attributed to uh, the souls of those who've passed on. Okay. Um, now, I mean, you went, w- talked about it briefly there. Where do you find yourself now on the spectrum of, I'll say, uh, not not believer, skeptic, skeptic and entertainer. How about that? You'll entertain the idea. I was, well, I'd say I'd definitely more than entertain the idea. I've been out investigating haunted places for more years than I can count. <laughs> uh, I don't see things, experience things all the time, but I have had experiences that leave no doubt in my mind that something's going on i don't know what it is but i know i know i know the difference between a hallucination and seeing something randomly that fits into a historic context that i wasn't even aware of at the time and when you're in a room and you hear footsteps or see something move that shouldn't move or see a shadow of something that isn't even there in the first place, then it's hard to say, well, that's, that's just, that's all just mumbo jumbo. It's all someone's pranking something and it's all fiction. It's, there's too many things that happen. I still keep a skeptical mindset with things. I always try and find the most plausible answers for everything, but when you rule everything out and there's nothing left, you have to be open to the fact that, well, this is, going in the unclassified file Hmm. what is it that sherlock holmes says once you've eliminated all possibilities whatever is left however unlikely must be the truth yeah i think something like that something like that Uh, so so, i mean one thing we've often heard from paranormal investigators is that there was some sort of formative experience something that first got them on the track of looking into the paranormal i guess what was that for you what was the first thing that shoved you into this world actually i don't think I can really pinpoint exactly. The only thing I can think of that really hooked me on ghosts is uh, Disney's uh, Adventures of Ichabod Crane and Mr. Toad. Okay. Story. I loved that all my life, and it always fascinated me about the Headless Horseman. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what drove me in this direction because by eight years old, I was buying my first Lloyd Arbach book and actually researching things and reading up about these things. So it just, it was just a natural inclination. I was a very shy kid too. So I was very anti-social, social, I would say. So I kept to myself a lot. Um, so I think naturally I kind of gravitated toward that idea of mysteries and all of that. Okay. now. So, I mean, I grew up in a very similar way, uh, was very interested in the paranormal long before I had my first experience that I remember. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I guess what was that like going from the position of someone who's read of the paranormal to your first direct experiences with it? Was that a challenge at all? I wasn't a challenge. It just took a long time to really experience anything. And I would have, I would go out places trying to find things and just in my local area. And most of the time I was terrified that I might experience something, but I actually didn't experience anything at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I had a few inexplicable experiences where I, I just had overwhelming emotional sensations that made no sense whatsoever. And I was out on a date one time and we were hiking down a trail and I saw this blue ball of light drop out of the sky and take off at a 45 degree angle. And just all these strange things that they terrified me, but they piqued my curiosity at the same time. Uh, I was the kid who was always terrified of skeletons terrified of the dark uh terrified of everything huh, me too <laughs> so i think i was kind of challenging myself in a way of trying to see something or try and make something that was scary less scary it's funny it makes me think like i mean like because a lot of the people that we've that we've talked to especially like that have interesting ghosts have had the same thing where it's like they've always kind of been interesting ghosts and then you said like it took a while for you to first experience something and me too like i've had an interesting ghost for ghosts and the paranormal for a long time i'd say probably since for me probably since like middle school high school ish maybe a little before but it took a long time for me to actually experience anything before and for similar reasons i was terrified of actually having the experience and i wonder if in some way that plays a part in it like your fear of the phenomenon makes it so the phenomenon is almost saying, well, maybe you're not ready to actually see it yet. And then when you were on your date, you were in like a relax, probably in like a more relaxed or distracted or like a uh, potentially happier mindset. And the phenomenon was like, how about we, uh, we, we go now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like the first time I saw an apparition was, it was, it took, it was probably, six or seven years into investigating places and was unexpected and of course fight or flight kicked in immediately Mm -hmm. and i wanted to just bolt and run because i was like two miles away from anywhere on a trail in the middle of the woods and it happened so quickly though the problem was as soon as the fear went away I just wanted to find out what that was. I wanted to go back and experience it or see what it was again. Uh, But by that time, it it had only lasted maybe about five or six seconds, but Mm -hmm. it was enough to really shake me up in a lot of ways. You said you saw an apparition. Was it in in the woods? Was it like like a human apparition? It was a human apparition. It was, it looked like something out of a movie. I, that's the only way I could describe it. It was a, a foggy shape, like a foggy silhouette of a person with sort of white, but with a little bluish green tinge to it. And it walked down off of a hill. And right before it hit the other side of the trail, it just went out like a light. And that was it. And I, but it's like, I, it's 
no explanation for I wasn't expecting to see anything. I didn't know that anything would be in that spot. It just came out of nowhere pretty much. Yeah, that's wild. Well, I mean, that seems to be pretty in line with what we've read about the phenomenon thus far. It doesn't tend to show up when you're ready for it. Mm. Uh, Rather, it likes to ambush you. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of the phenomenon ambushing people. Uh, so one of the stories in your book that generated some really good discussion was uh, the story of Piers Galveston. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly what we were what we were fascinated by me in particular was him manifesting in multiple forms. One is this playful trickster just kind of pouncing out at people along the curtain wall and the other as this horrifying uh, beheaded entity with yes. the uh, the skull dragging itself along the ground by its teeth while the headless corpse stumbles behind it. Still one of the most metal images we've read in any <laughs> yeah. book so far. Yeah. We were talking about how it seemed much more like a Japanese haunting than a European one. We were very fascinated by that. And I'm dying to know, what do you think of peers manifesting in these multiple different forms? Is is it possible that two ghosts were generated by this murder, or is his spirit simply malleable? I think that's where you get into um, uh, intelligent versus residual, where things are, where on one hand you can have a spirit that can interact with of the living and interact with the environment because it is an actual thinking entity. And then on the other hand, you have other uh, apparitions and phenomena that are just moments recorded in time that aren't actual, like they're not intelligent, they're not capable of thought. It's just a memory that's repeating itself. So you can have multiple apparitions of the same person, but one would be the intelligent and the other ones would be uh, the residual memories of this person. So it's, it's entirely possible that some of the phenomena is just uh, some kind of moment in time that's reflected in certain places while other ones like his, uh, his headless corpse out in the yards, chasing people around, that could be a little bit more intelligence. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly what I would do in his position. I mean, that's that's fascinating. I'm just picturing headless peers um, attempting to break into the castle and getting kicked off the curtain wall by his own residual <laughs> well, haunting. I, I was I was asked about that, thinking about that is like if they are existing, I guess on a similar wavelength of reality, could the intelligent haunting then bother or be bothered by his own uh, residual haunting? In which case, God, that'd be frustrating. If, I I would think it would be feasible, but uh, I don't know. I've never actually encountered any stories of a ghost interacting with himself like that. So <laughs> I mean, there's very few stories of different paranormal elements interacting with each other. I know because I keep an eye out for them because they fascinate me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I've I've read I've read one or two in which there was some sort of interplay between what seems to be ghosts and Bigfoot. Or ghosts mm-hmm. and uh, UFOs, mm-hmm. or yeah. UFOs and Bigfoot, but uh, yeah, I've never, I've never seen. I, I mean, outside of you, you'll have occasionally mediums being like, there are three ghosts in this house. Two of them are malicious, and they're keeping the third down. But 
that's nothing. There's nothing visual there. There's nothing guaranteed beyond what that person's saying. Oh, absolutely, and it's entirely possible that, in some kind of dimensional sense, that they're not existing in the same time continuum, so mm-hmm. to speak, and that they're not even aware of each other because they're in a different. We'll call it time stream, I guess, for back, uh, lack of better words, but in that kind of idea that these are just like reels of time that are layered up and they don't always mesh together because I've always wondered about I do think a lot about time and uh, space and all of that and I always wondered if because we don't there's we're learning a lot about time and the universe and all of that but I always wondered if time itself instead of how this linear concept that we have of time as being this one line that goes across, what if it's more like a ball of yarn and the yarn keeps spinning itself across itself and a haunting occurs when two of those strands of time hit in just the right sense and the right way to bleed slightly into the other one. Hmm. I mean, I'm definitely coming around to the idea that time is likely not as linear as we think it is because there's a lot of stuff happening around us that um, uh, doesn't lend well to that idea. But yeah. also, like, there's been stories of ghosts and uh, of ghosts uh, and and hauntings that have, people have seen, and it seems like it was just themselves. That they that oh. they were seeing, you know, either past or past or future, yeah. Which is which is fascinating to me, and mm-hmm. I wonder, like, with that idea, like the idea of like the with the time being as, um, like, if it was like you said, like a yarn ball, I wonder if it would be possible to set up a way to experiment with that idea to kind of almost f- make something like that happen, almost to go back to what you were what we were saying before to almost get like yourself to interact with yourself or a ghost from one timeline to interact with another by almost like making that kind of interaction happen i have no idea how yeah i must say breaking time easy thing to do let's just uh we'll go to the corner store get some bleach get some ammonia and we'll break time wait so no, that's want, just mustard gas. i was gonna say so stop, you want mustard gas stop yes. trying to trick us into making mustard gas <laughs> i am so tired of explaining it to nine one one. I, now, for the record, this has never happened. Now, I, I am curious, because we're, we're now getting into the stranger side of uh, paranormal investigating. Uh, one topic we've often returned to is the topic of mediums and psychics and basically using anomalous means to investigate anomalous phenomenon. If there is really any value in that is because whatever their findings their findings, the source of it is just as mysterious as the thing they're having findings about. So right. I'm just curious, what do you, what do you, what you feel on this topic? Are psychics and mediums something you've employed in the use in your investigations, or is it something you've avoided so far? I have worked with psychics in the past on varying levels, from just people who didn't even think they had any psychic abilities to people who make extraordinary claims about themselves. Um, it's I find a lot of times the people who are the quietest about it are the ones that have the most promise. Uh, 
and I, of course I'm always the problem with working with psychics is I'm always on the lookout for any kind of fraud, any kind of uh, misleading information, any kind of leaked information, any kind of cold reading, all of that stuff. And uh, I hate, I don't like to divulge too much information. And I like to make sure that I can verify everything that's said. And a lot of times there'll be things that are said that it's like, you cannot double check this in a book or something. You can't look up the records to find out if this is true or not. Yeah, no, and uh, I, I empathize. It's always something that we have to dra- grapple with, especially when we're talking with, say, like alien contact T narratives is how much of this can we take at face value versus how much of this is a metaphoric experience or colored by their own cultural expectations. Yeah. Uh, and it, it becomes uh, basically it becomes an inescapable riddle. You are stuck in this position where, well, you believe it or not, there's just as much proof either direction. So ultimately it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And uh, Gray Barker was behind a lot of, questionable things in the ufo realm too so mm-hmm. and he was gay too <laughs> oh wow i didn't I, I actually didn't know that interesting it's actually it was his book he wrote the first book on the men in black that actually inspired uh the comic book writer who created the men in black comics so he's yeah, there's a lot of gay figures in the history of the paranormal that people don't realize how influential they actually were that's fascinating. I'm gonna have to do a bit. I'm gonna have to do a deep dive on him. Not gonna lie. Thus far in our research, Gray Barker has sort of been uh, a footnote in the story of John Keel as yeah. we were researching him. Well, according to Gray Barker, he was the one who made the crank phone call to John Keel in his hotel room True. that night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he they. He was kind of upset because Keel got all the coverage, even though he was there first. So I'm sure there was some bad blood between the two of them. Yeah, because uh, they both, I mean, you know, John Keel wrote the Mothman Prophecies and uh, Gray Barker wrote uh, Collapse of the Silver Bridge. Yeah. Fascinating. So uh, another topic that we discussed in length in regard to your book is how much privacy do we owe the dead? And I'm actually very glad that I now know that you're also a true crime buff because this is uh, something I've been asking myself uh, lately. Given the nature of your work and the fact that many of the spirits detailed in the stories there never got the chance to come out, at least not fully, while they were alive, do you think we have kind of any obligation to to keep the secrets of the dead or kind of respect their dignity? And how do you personally walk that kind of line during your research? I, I well, I do think that privacy is very important. Uh, that's why generally there are a lot of times where I can have opportunities to investigate recent incidents, but I refuse to on a moral ground. Um, I know of several murder sites that have happened within the past 15 years or so, and I just will not go near that. I know I there was a big controversy back uh, after the Pulse shooting when some investigators went in there within a month of the incident and oh. started trying to contact the dead. That's and that was just, yeah, that 
Cringy. I do not like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And those people, I don't have any respect for at all. Uh, But at the same time, I think in order to tell the story of some of these people who don't have a voice, you have to tell the full story. So you shouldn't necessarily sugarcoat things, but at the same time, you shouldn't make anything up. You can speculate, but you have to draw the line somewhere. You can't just say, oh, well, this person obviously must have been gay. Um, and I, I try to manage that as much as possible. Uh, a lot of the people I do research on are people who were known to have been queer in their life. Uh, and then they just happen to be haunting places. And then there are certain stories where uh, it's just there's probably something there, but I don't know for sure. So I'm just leaving it at that, that it could be. Uh, so I try not to, I try not to out anyone dead or alive. Uh, it's, but sometimes the stories are just too important to pass up. That's understandable. I mean, and I mean, especially when we're talking something historical, obviously not any recent tragedies, uh, but there is something to be said about, I don't know, trying to create a complete picture of history, not yeah. not for the sake of those who lived it, but for the sake of people who might have to repeat it at some point right. down the line. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a good point. Now, I mean, of the haunted locations in your book, how many of them would you say that you personally have visited or take at least gotten a chance to look at? Unfortunately, not that many. Okay. Um, I that was the problem when I was first when I first had the idea and I was starting to approach publisher. I was trying to find a publisher that would give me enough of an advance to actually travel to all these places. Uh, and unfortunately, it wasn't the right climate for that. So I had just the opportunity to go to some of these places just out of uh, pure coincidence. So I've been to places like Villa Montezuma and Santa in San Diego and um, been to a couple places in London too, but I'm trying to remember which ones I've been to. It's been so long. Um, I, I did go to the, the New York uh, city bar uh, that used to be a, a funeral parlor. Okay. I did go to that one. Um, and then I have, I have been to a couple of the bars in Louisiana as well, because uh, I did go down to New Orleans for a brief stay. But the ones in England that I'm most curious about, those are the ones that I haven't had a chance to go to yet. Oh, sure. They're, you know, in a whole other country. That's a little, that makes it a little difficult and expensive. Yeah. It's, well, the last time I was there, it was 1998. So it's been a while since I've been in England. And yeah, it's, it's a long flight. And it's not cheap. And yeah, they you don't really get paid to go over there just to visit a ghost place. And it's yeah. Less than- yeah. <laughs> if only, right? If you yeah. do, if you do go back, please take a selfie with Piers Galveston's severed <laughs> phantom head. I, I really want to see it. Yeah, I will try my best. <laughs> that, I, imagine if that is the the picture that proves the paranormal. It's just a selfie with a severed head pulling itself along the ground by its teeth. Just this gay knight, <laughs> just being like, "Leave me alone! Haven't I suffered enough?" <laughs> 
Now, I mean, so of the locations, though, that you haven't hit, I guess, what's your all-time bucket list? What are the ones that you most are uh, wanting to spend a few nights investigating? So many. Um, definitely uh, the Royal... No, now it's called Capitol Theater in Clearwater, Florida. Mm. Yes. That's that a great story in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one, I definitely... It's now owned by the city of Clearwater. Uh, so it has changed hands since that came out. Definitely want to see uh, Mercer Williams' house in Savannah. It's a beautiful house. Yeah. I, my sister was there, but I didn't have a chance to see it yet. Uh, there's definitely there's more places in England than I can count. England and Wales, Plasnawid, uh, the, where the ladies of Langolin lived. Uh, those that house I definitely want to check out in Wales. And then there's some other ones that I'm really curious to look into because I don't have the full story behind them, and. Because of that, I want to do some thorough research. There's another uh, old tavern in England that is supposed to be haunted uh, by a pair of female lovers. Um, uh, The tavern owner's daughter fell for a traveling gypsy and caught them in the barn and murdered her girlfriend and stashed her body on the property. And supposedly she's still wandering out to where the barn used to be uh, where uh, trying to find uh, her love. And then there's another curious story from Australia near Parramatta where um, I've never heard of a story like this before, but apparently back when uh, during the convict era, when they were building all the major roads, there were uh, these two men who were lovers uh called adam and eves uh, and the one lover murdered the other in a jealous rage and his while they were working in the area where he stashed his body his dead naked corpse came up to him and caused him to have a heart attack and die oh wow so <laughs> but i haven't looked I have I've only found one version of that story in one book, and I have not found the original uh, story that that was copied from. So I'm still trying to do a deep dive into that right now. Interesting. The first time I've I think we've heard of a of a zombie haunting. Yes. <laughs> now, I mean, so when you're looking at these places, kind of deciding where you want to investigate, or I guess right now, I mean, where you can afford to go investigate. Looking at these places as an investigator, what are you looking for to identify a, a spot as, as prime for an investigation? What are some of the red flags that uh, announce a place you should avoid? I, I always prefer to investigate places that are accessible to the public because okay. I like the idea of, hey, this is what happened to me, but don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself, because uh, I know that if I have an experience, it doesn't prove to anyone that anything happened at all. So I like to invite people to experience things for themselves all the time. Uh, so definitely that is a major consideration. Uh, distance is always, unfortunately, a consideration. Uh, but personally, I like to do repeated investigations at a place because you can't just go in one place for one night and say, okay, well, it's haunted or it's not haunted because 
phenomena happens at all hours of day or night. It can sometimes happen only once a year. There are all these different factors that factor into everything that you have to take into consideration whenever you're investigating. And sometimes just being there for five or six hours isn't enough to make any determinations at all. Very understandable. I mean, I think uh, some of the other people we've talked to uh, have told us where, you know, you look on TV and an hour long investigation happens in an episode and they catch, you know, evidence which you don't see is, well, they've been basically living there for a week straight, you know, putting oh, yeah. on the same outfit every night. So it looks like it's one night. Exactly. <laughs> but I would say I I'm always leery of uh, the overhyped places, the okay. places that I I've never been one for popularity or trying to impress people or anything like that. So I'm just the type of person where if something is too trendy, I tend to go a little bit the opposite direction. So I, I like the places that nobody knows about where you don't have to fend off other people to try and fight your way in. And you can just go there and do what you need to do and not raise any eyebrows and then say something about it afterwards. I mean, we I perfectly understand that this last summer I got the chance to go to the Winchester Mystery Mansion for a flashlight tour. And yes, it's very cool. But uh, as I think I said before, I I wouldn't know if I saw a ghost or experienced any anomalous activity or not, because they had speakers in some of the rooms playing creepy music and they had weird, creepy lighting in several rooms that made weird shadows and and very similarly, right near us, we have Eloise Asylum. I was ju- I was literally just about to mention Eloise. That's funny. They ruined it. They destroyed it, Ken. They destroyed it. <laughs> a very similar situation where they commercialized the fact that it was a popular investigation site, and now you can't trust any evidence you'll ever get from there. Well, I know here in Ohio, uh, the Mansfield Reformatory has... Definitely gone the way of turning ghosts into a business, but at the same time, they have invested that money into actually renovating the building. So as much as it can get crowded there and it's a very popular place to go and it can get a little bit overexposure, the money is going towards something good. Yeah. So when I, the first time I went there, everything was crumbling. It was just falling apart. And now the the front of the building is looking back to its former glory. And they even have a little visitor center area that they built to keep people from uh, treading too much inside the main building to keep it from running down all over again. But, but so it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You always have people who, because when people don't experience anything, they feel like it's a sham. So some, there's always that urge to be like, you have to give people what they paid for. And so it's, it's true. <laughs> I, I think that there, like, I think there's a difference between like marketing it as someplace that is a haunted location and letting people come in and do their own investigations there. Like, like what that sounds like, like what the Velisca house does, like what uh, the Randolph County asylum does, like some of these other really well-known locations um, and then what like the Winchester Mansion or Eloise ha- have done where they've literally where they've commercialized it and they've made it almost like a like a like a Disney ride, you know? Yeah. And and they also had a movie made about it. So, yeah. Right. 
so it's like I think that there's um I think I I I think that people maintaining the properties and keeping them up and that letting people come in and rent it out to investigate I think that's great and I think a lot of these other locations should continue doing that right because it, it it's it's part of history if nothing else you well, know. And as we we learned when we spoke, we got to we got the opportunity to speak with Dan Allen, who's the owner and operator of the Randolph County Asylum. And he uh, I mean, he told he explained to us that a lot of those programs, that's what allows those old buildings to still exist. It's mm-hmm. what keeps the lights on, keeps the property tax paid. And without yeah. them, we that part of history would get bulldozed along with, well, all the rest of history that we've already bulldozed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen a lot of places disappear over the years. And even the, uh, I used to work at a gay bar in Akron, Ohio, that was haunted. And that building is gone. Uh, when they put in the new highway exchange, they bulldoze it to the ground. So it makes you wonder where the spirits go, you know, or oh. if they're just wandering or if now they're untethered or. What? Just a homeless spirit sitting on a corner holding like a little ectoplasm sign. Don't make me think about ghost hobo camps. That's just sad. <laughs> so sh- there's, there'll be a little shack town of ghosts. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I want to make sure we have time to get to our next question here. So we are to understand that you're working on a sequel to Queer Hauntings, which expands the focus to encompass other areas where the paranormal intersects with the lives of queer people. So without, you know, spoiling your book, have you had any interesting findings on your research? A lot. I, hmm. I, spent, I spent about 10 years just delving into research for anything. So I'm like, there's, there's got to be more out there. And I, originally, I was just trying to expand out uh, the ghost stories that I had. And I at least doubled those. But at the same time, I started being like, I knew that there had been uh, queer psychics existing for millennia. Oh, yeah. Um, and that always fascinated me. And I'd come across a couple of those. So I started digging into all realms of things from uh, uh, the Society of Psychical Research uh, in England that was started in the 1800s. And the sheer number of gay and lesbian people who have worked for that organization over the years. It's it's staggering. Um, uh, One of them just passed away. Uh, His name was Donald. His name. (laughs) But he, uh, he actually was closeted while he was uh, working for SPR and sort of lived a double life. And he ended up writing a book about homosexuality and having to pretend like he was straight when he wrote it back in the 1950s. And but there's all these interesting psychics that the things that psychics in Victorian society could get away with doing. You could you could basically molest someone there claiming that you were possessed by a spirit of a different sex and no one would bat an eyelash They'd be like, Oh, well, it's the spirit doing it. Sorry. <laughs> and then, but then you deal with like ufology and all that's the number of, uh, number of people who have been involved in it, who have been um, gay and lesbian and the abduction statistics too, that I kind of shocked me when I found 
that a very high level of abductee, abductees actually uh, fall in the queer spectrum uh, to a shocking degree. Um, but there's uh, a few researchers who actually dared to do it and dared to look into all of that. And uh, there was a book by Scott Rogo and uh, another author about the Tahunga Canyon encounters, which was a series of uh, UFO uh, abductions or phenomena that occurred between this group of six or seven women who some of whom had relationships with each other over a period of maybe 30 or 40 years, I think. Uh, and that book was written in the 70s and nobody hardly remembers it at all. Uh, but then you, uh, then I wanted to expand out too into different religions. Uh, so I did a lot of research on everything from, uh, from witchcraft, uh, as in like Wicca, like traditional mm -hmm. witchcraft, yeah. uh, to uh, all sorts of different uh, South American and Latin American religions, voodoo, all of that stuff, uh, sort of the true story behind it all. And the, the lot of the queerness that is involved in a lot of the spirits in a lot of these different uh, religious beliefs that are not at all straight and ceremonies that involve uh, different things with uh, the changing of sex and all of that. And so I, I basically went over everything, even Lauren Cohen's famous statement about what if Bigfoot is gay that uh, he got so much flack about, but it was, he was, he had a reasonable question. And there have been interesting incidents with like cryptozoology that makes you wonder about sexuality and uh, cryptids and all of that. Not just like the Pobobawa of uh, Africa, the 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 bat demon that rapes men in their sleep, which could be folklore, political uh, related, or it could be an actual creature. Uh, there's a lot of debate uh, all over about that one. Uh, and then, but there's just so many interesting things out there that are in plain sight. It's just, they, they get lost in everything else. And sometimes you get the strangest things that pop up, like Aleister Crowley uh, making some kind of remark at one point, claiming that he made the Loch Ness Monster from his own penis and <laughs> conjuring it into the monster that it was. That absolutely sounds like something that Aleister Crowley would say, like 100%. Like, God damn it, Crowley. God. I'm so glad William Butler Yates kicked him down the stairs that one time. <laughs> like, yeah, a lot, very few people deserve to get kicked down the stairs by iconic British poets, but he's definitely one of them. Now, I, we re I, we really got to do a book on Crowley soon yeah, because we, we need to, I, I need to let all of this, uh, this, uh, like both curiosity and just sheer like uh, awe in good, bad, I don't know, but we, I think we need to do a book on Crowley. I'm sure we'll get to it. Now, it is interesting though, the idea that there is a disproportionately larger amount of abductees who are also queer. 
And it makes me okay. So there's this idea, which I'm sure you you've probably encountered before, that uh, the phenomenon, be it ghosts or UFOs or cryptids, it's attracted to liminal places, places that are in between, places that are off the beaten path or abandoned places. But also that it's attracted to liminal people, people who are transients, people who are living in transient, uh, who are living in temporary communities, who are between places emotionally. I see where you're going. And with this. I do wonder. I do wonder if part of it is because operating as a queer person in the modern day, you are to a degree put in a position kind of a little bit on the outside. I mean, it's Absolutely. getting better, but that because you've been forced into this kind of liminal position of the outsider, the phenomenon is better able to interact with you. I don't know where I was going with that. It was just a thought that popped in my head. No, I, I, I definitely agree. Cause it, any in any field of study that you do, if if you're in any biological fields uh, dealing with studying creatures of any sort, you don't just study all the ones that fall into the same category. You always want to study the outliers, the random anomalous uh, aspects. You want to see the diversity within it, and so it's not like they're going to pick up the same two people from West Virginia every single day uh, and find out what happens. And they're going to know all of humanity from just that. Right. So obviously they're going to do experiments with everything else um, and every type of human out there. It's like the Betty and Barney Hill thing, uh, which uh, learning about them uh, is fascinating. Oh yeah. Really? And uh, Barney was fascinating. He worked in the civil rights movement uh, in new England uh, even was uh, honored a few times by the people there for all that he did. And, but he was just a lot of the ways kind of destroyed by his story coming out with his abduction story. But no, he was, he was an amazing person. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious that idea that you, that you just said, and it got me thinking, and I would be curious to see how many, um, like how many trans people have experienced some kind of paranormal phenomenon in their lifetime, if for no other reason than just to see, and then compare that to compare that to cis people or you know trans and non non binary people compared to to cis people, and see the percentages of how many have experienced it versus haven't experienced it, because. That would be, I mean, if we're saying that the phenomenon, any form of it might show itself to anybody who may, who is in that kind of liminal sense, like queer people are, are obviously going to be on underneath that umbrella, but I think trans people even more so, because they are literally both social, socially going through that, that, that kind of space, but also emotionally and physically going through that, uh, an actual transition. Yeah. Absolutely. Just uh, even more so than uh, LGBTQ, uh, the uh, the whole community, trans people, definitely. Uh, you start thinking about the way that society thinks of them and the way that society thinks of the paranormal. And there's a lot of parallels with questioning their existence, uh, being uh, uh, completely isolated from society. Uh, uh, being alone, in a sense, scaring people uh, for not necessarily any reason at all. It's just, that's what I always found fascinating about uh, growing up 
uh, growing up gay and uh, being in the queer community and thinking that maybe this is why I was attracted to the paranormal in the first place, because I felt just as alone and isolated as the phenomena mm -hmm. that exists in this outside realm is treated. I mean, I think you might be onto something there just in general, because I've noticed such a, a high interest in the paranormal and true crime and all of these more um, like, you know, morbid, morbid topics amongst all of my queer friends, you know, mm -hmm. myself included, obviously I'm, I'm into the paranormal. I'm non-binary. My spouse is trans and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and is a true crime buff. Like, it, and all of my, it seems like all of my queer friends are into all of this stuff too. So it's like, there's obviously some draw here, you know. And actually, there was a trans activist in the 1970s who was also heavily into ufology. Uh, I cannot remember her name for the life of me, but I, I have it somewhere in my research notes. So when I find it, I'll, I'll have to let you know about that. Yeah, please do. My ears are perking up like Elder. Yeah, we actually, <laughs> yeah. I'll actually be able to get Jay excited about reading something regarding UFOs. Okay, that's a stretch. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I will... For her. Well, and to jump back to something Rory said, uh, beyond just simple metrics of how many queer people have experienced paranormal phenomenon versus not, I'd be very curious to see. I mean, this is something that we would have had to have started 50 years ago, but uh, how those numbers change over time in relation to the relative, I guess, level of acceptance of that community yeah. in mainstream society. If the more... Yeah you go mainstream, the less paranormal you encounter. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's an I mean, interesting thought, though. There's no like way, it. possible way to test it currently. We need a new ostracized group to start from scratch. <laughs> a control group, if you will. So we're going to pick everyone, let's say Pittsburgh, and turn them into second classes. <laughs> uh, we're no. not doing this. No. <laughs> not Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh didn't do anything. It is time for us as a society to begin oppressing Ohio. No. <laughs> no, I'm all for that. <laughs> I am so sick of that useless slab of land just sitting there producing astronauts and nothing else. It also produced presidents too, yeah, and actors. Yeah. And Ken, yes, and Ken. Ken is good. Ken is a good thing that Ohio made, and I guess we need astronauts. But um. Look, I don't like Ohio. And I I can't explain why. I'm it's from because Detroit. you're a Michigander. Yeah, you're, you're grown. It's your innate DNA prejudice. I used to wear. I used to have a T-shirt that I wore to sleep all the time that said, "Michigan. At least we're not Ohio." <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, geez. I usually refer to Ohio as the Florida of the North. So hey, that's funny. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> all right well moving into our last question it is the easiest one uh, what's next for ken and where can people find your work what's next is hopefully uh finding someone willing to take a chance in the new book uh and once i get that out there i do want to work on a sequel to queer hauntings with sort of a revised, expanded, updated edition of all the new stories and all the things that have changed with the previous locations since 2009 when it came out. Um, otherwise, just still constantly searching for new research and new stories, new anything, uh, always 
welcome to hear from different people who have anything to say. Uh, not everything that I get goes out public. So I just like to have all the information for my notes and my filing cabinet and all of that so that I can start compiling as much of this extremely unstudied subject as I possibly can. Um, otherwise, I, I don't know what the future is going to bring for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just take things one day at a time and uh, try and see if I can make the world a more interesting place. Um, you, people can find me on my website, moonspenders.com. Uh, that's still in the process of being worked on when I ever get a chance to not work and actually have time to work on other things. Um, I'm on Twitter, which I know may or may not be around at this point yeah. in yeah. the next few years. <laughs> uh, Twitter, Facebook, all social media as Moonspenders. So I can be found basically type in that name and you'll find me. Um, and I'll put yeah, links in the bio. Yeah. And I always welcome anyone who wants to tell their story. And I do not judge anyone for any of their beliefs or disbeliefs or personal opinions or anything like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm always looking to hear from more people out there. All right. Well, thank you very, very much for your time, Ken. We really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun for us. We hope you had fun as well. Uh, I think we'll give you back the rest of your evening. Have a great night. Thanks. You too. Bye, Ken. Bye. Take a walk with